verses 1 to 8, and this is part 3 in our series on 1 Timothy. So last week in our series in 1 Timothy, we looked at some wonderful attributes of God's character as he dealt with the Apostle Paul and then obviously with every believer since then, including us, those of us who, who belong to his church, the, the, the wonderful plan of salvation, the sacrifice that, that brought us here. All of us, we are here because of that patience of our Lord, his, his abundant grace and his righteous character. Let's recall that Paul wrote the pastoral letters with instructions as to how people should conduct them, themselves within the church. Which are the pastoral letters? 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And Philemon is sort of, yeah, whether you include that in the pastoral or not, but let's just say that there's three pastoral letters. So this morning we will continue and we're going to look specifically at, at prayer and what part prayer plays in our communion with God and that's that vertical dimension and with our world around us. That's that horizontal dimension. More importantly, the, the, the call that we have to pray for all sorts of people, including those in positions of authority. So let's look first of all at praying to God. Praying to God, verses 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. Therefore, and then jumps to verse 8, therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. This chapter, as we can see, chapter 2 begins with an exhortation. He is urging, appealing, beseeching Timothy to follow these instructions with regards to prayer. And then he says, first of all, when he says, first of all, he is expressing a priority, something which is of primary importance. And what is it? It's the need to be praying in a particular way. And the Apostle Paul is not just talking about prayer in general. In the following verses he will... But before he gets to that, in verse 1, Paul uses four different words for prayer. He says prayer is petitions, prayer, intercessions and thanksgiving. These words are interchangeably, they're not dissimilar from one to the other except for the fourth one, thanksgiving. We will be doing all three, prayers, what else? Intercessions and petitions. We will be doing, we should be doing all of this now while we're alive. When we get to heaven, guess what? There's no need for prayer. We're there. But there is... Thanksgiving that will continue into eternity. If you struggle to say thank you, Lord, now, well, you're going to struggle in eternity. 
because that will continue as we praise our Lord for his salvation. Okay, so we need to be engaged in prayer. That is repeated many times in the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelations. But who do we pray for? Well, we need to be praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. In fact, everyone. And the reason Paul says that this says this is that for many in that day, they would concern themselves to praying only for the people around them, for their particular nation, for their particular family, for people in their inner circle, the people they liked, that they got along with, would pray for them. And of course, the same thing happens to us today. We tend to pray for our family, our friends, and more importantly, ourselves. But here, we are called to pray for all people. Let's go beyond this exclusivity to inclusivity. The people we like and the people we don't like. No person is too far gone, too lost in sin whom God's grace cannot reach. And some of you here know what that's about. And, and, and so why should we pray for them? And, and in particular, the Apostle Paul begins to pray for those in positions of authority in government. At that time, there was a cruel maniac in power. His name was, was Nero, the Emperor Nero, Rome, and uh, later he would be the one who would execute the Apostle Paul and Peter. They say that he lit his gardens at night by impaling or crucifying Christians and putting, painting them with tar and then setting them alight so he could light up his garden while they were alive. And yet Paul does not call Christians to political revolution. What he does is he calls them to prayer. Isn't that remarkable? And the word king, as we know, signifies the, the, the supreme ruler in the land then, in the land today. Prime ministers, presidents and kings and queens. While the second is a qualifying phrase, it says all those in authority. This would include all people in positions of power and prominence who have influence over our lives and the lives of our community. As you know, it's easy to become political these days. We've just been through a long, arduous political process in the vote for yes, no, and here we are, the morning after, for the voice. And, and in any church, inevitably, there will be those who lean to the left and there will be those who lean to the right, those who are 
more liberally minded and those who are more conservative. Most of you know that I'm, I don't like the government of our day. That's, that's, I don't think I've made that any secret. I think they have made some atrocious decisions which go against our faith, against our community and against humanity. I mean, when, when you are bringing laws that allow for abortion right up until birth, that's against humanity. That is against God. These are atrocious decisions. But you see, I don't have to like them to be able to pray for them. In fact, if I don't like them, it's actually more reason to pray for them. Because that is what, why? Because that is what God wants me to do. God wants me not to just do the things I like to do, but he wants me to do the things that he urges me to do, exhorts me to do in his word. Why? Because they make decisions that have a huge impact on our lives. Because they have been established in their position by God himself. That's what Romans 13 says. Because God is sovereign and he hears and answers the prayers of his people who cry out to him. Why? Because the lawmakers in our land at federal, state and at council level make decisions that will either help or hinder our work as a church. So instead of men, and particularly men like to do this, I don't know if women get into arguments about politics all that much, but men do. So instead of men getting into arguments about politics and world events, God calls men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands. That's verse 8. So he is very clear on what men will do and next week we'll be very clear on what women will do. Anyway, there's your homework. You can read the following verses. But the purpose of this, the purpose of this, we need to pray for our leaders because we want to live in, in peace. We should like peace. We should be praying for peace for peace and quiet, to carry out our, our duty as Christians in godliness and holiness. In, in times of peace, there is more opportunity to share the gospel and to do good for others, to help others. There is the opportunity for learning and growing in the faith. We're able to meet in homes and, and, and encourage one another and meet for Bible study, prayer. There are more opportunities to praise and worship our maker as we are doing here this morning with music and song. If there is persecution, everything has to be very quiet. We can't sing because people are going to hear. You've got to hear some of the stories of what our brothers and sisters under persecution go through. The church goes underground. They're all hiding from authority. They've got somebody on the lookout. They're not at gate duty. They're on, you know, neighborhood watch. If the raid is going to come any moment. Maybe some of you here already know what that was like back home. Also, when there's persecution, some Christians whose faith is very weak, they give in to temptation. Do I really want to risk my family? Yeah, let's just 
Let's just cave in. Compromise. So, so the idea that we should pray for peace is good for all of us. As long as the danger, of course, is we don't get too comfortable in the peace that we enjoy and the freedoms, right? That is the other danger. Secondly, the point is the pleasure of God. First, the prayer to God. Now we look at the pleasure of God, verses 3 to 4. This is good. And pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Whatever we do in life, big or small, we always need to ask ourselves, is this good and does it please God our Saviour? Our lives are to please our Father. But something that God really cares about are those who are, who are walking far from him. Those who are far away, they could be prodigals, they could be people who have never come to hear the word of God. So why should we care for the lost? Well, here are some reasons. Let me give you some of them from the scriptures. There are more, but let me just give you four of them. First of all, because of God's heart. God truly does care for those who do not know him. He says... In Ezekiel 33:11, our first reading this morning, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not like when a wicked man dies, God is saying, right? He's saying, there. Not like that. In fact, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather, but rather that they turn from their wicked way and live. That's his heart. Why should we, why should we pray for the lost? Because of Christ's sacrifice. Last week we saw this trustworthy saying that the Apostle Paul said that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom he was, he was the worst. He was the chief of sinners. And Jesus himself said this was his mission when he came. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Why should we pray? Because of Paul's example. Despite how much he suffered at their hands, at the hands of who? The hands of the Jews, who were his own people. Despite the fact that God had called him to go to the Gentiles, despite all of this, Paul reveals his heart for his Jewish people when he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelite is that they may be saved. And in fact, in the previous chapter, in chapter 9, he actually says, I I would go to hell. I would go to eternal perdition if that would save my people. If Paul felt so concerned that he prayed for his own people to be saved, should we not do the same for our own, for our community, for our neighbours? So it's very important for us when we, when we come to passages like this 
that we understand the context. Remember that Paul's concern here is to counter the Jews who would have been saying that God wishes to destroy sinners and and salvation is only for the elite. Therefore, we only pray for those who are close to us, for our own people. We're not going to worry about the world. We're not going to worry about the Gentiles, the pagans. So Paul is countering that. He's, He's speaking against that thought, that idea, to hell with them. And this can very easily become our thought as well, isn't it? In response to that type of thinking, that exclusive us versus them type of thinking, Paul says, no, God desires to save all kinds of people everywhere. And this is a verse that has generated a lot of debate between, let's just call the camps, Armenians and Calvinists. Free willers versus reformed. For Armenians, which, uh, you know, they say for Armenians, each individual is able to accept the gospel through faith or resist it through unbelief. Okay, so that's what Armenians believe. So, It's your decision. For Calvinists, or the Reformed Church, it is about predestination, where even before the beginning of time, God elected a limited number of souls to grant salvation. In simple terms, for Armenians, the key to your heart is on the inside of the door, For Calvinists, the key is on the outside of the door. You understand? And there's been debates for millennia, a couple of thousand years now about this. Is it one side versus the other? And in our church here, we have both groups. It's fun. Never-ending arguments, isn't it? But it, and, and, and usually the, the arguments between these two groups usually starts with a loaded question. Does God want everyone saved? And the majority of evangelical Christians would have to say yes, because that is, that's what the text says, that's what the Bible says. He wants everybody to be saved. So if God desires that all be saved, why doesn't he in his sovereignty and power save all men? And you know, the scriptures often sets these two, which to us seems like opposite ideas and doctrines, and they, many times they, they're found in the same context. And the Apostle Paul didn't seem to be struggling with this. It, it, to us it seems like a, a contradiction that God is is sovereign and yet men are responsible to repent and to believe. Well, you don't believe me? Read Romans 9 and then follow it up and read Romans 10. Let me just give you a couple of verses from those chapters. And Paul said, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's Romans 9.18. You can't argue with that. There's election right there. Predestination. 
And just a few verses later, in chapter 10, we read, remember that in the original writings there were no chapters, there were no verses, there was just one whole letter. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. And what happens when we, when we try to understand the Bible is that we, we've come up with different frameworks or templates or filters that affect our doctrinal stance. And some people have moved from one to the other in the course of their lives. And back and forth. I don't know. And this is where there's a system of understanding doctrines and, and teachings in the scriptures. It's called systematic theology, which enables us to understand and, and teach scriptures in a systematic way. We use it in discipleship. We use it in Bible colleges. We use it to, to teach people to grow and mature in the faith. So when we come to texts like this, our filters, our paradigm, our framework kicks in and, and, and we put that on top of the text. What I think we should do is the text should be speaking on top of our framework, on top of our paradigm, our filters. Let the word of God speak to us. I don't care which club you belong to. The Armenians, the Reformed, the Calathampians, wherever it is. Let the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, speak to you the truth that is there. And and, and we must be humble enough to to recognize that I don't have it all together. And I'm, I'm okay with that. And when somebody comes to me and barging and all, okay, fine. Allow the Holy Spirit to work. And because I'm, I'm not one or the other, I sort of sit on the fence. I don't, sometimes I don't get invited to these parties and I don't get invited to those parties. I don't get invited to speak at those parties and I don't get invited to speak at those parties because it says, well, are you a minion or are you a reformer? I say, well, I'm trying to follow the Bible. Yeah, that's what they all say. But it's true. Even if we cannot logically fit it all together in our theological framework, that's what God calls us to do. God's desire is for all people to come to faith in him, according to this verse and many others. The Bible presents the reasons to believe that God chooses us for salvation and that at the same time, he offers us a choice to be saved. And that not all people will be saved. And we will be held responsible for that choice. And taken in a shallow sense, all this can appear, like I said, contradictory. Yet the concepts are presented, the verses are presented in the scriptures. Let's not get hung up on the theology and miss out on the obvious application of verse 4 by asking ourselves, do I desire the salvation of all kinds of people? 
Well, are they elect or not? Well, how do you know? How do you know they're elect or not? You've got to preach the gospel to everyone. Only God. From eternity past, eternity knows who are the elect are. Meanwhile, you've got to preach the gospel. You've got to share the gospel. I like what the, uh, the Australian-born pastor and theologian Sidlow Baxter, Sidlow Baxter, what a great name. That's much better than Paul Mozichuk, isn't it? Sidlow Baxter, yes. What a great name. He once said, men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. They're helpless against our prayers. That's good, isn't it? And our next point, the provision of God, verses 5 to 6. For there is one God, mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed been witnessed to at the proper time. So, so let's follow what the, the, the logical argument, what, what it's telling us here, the scriptures are telling us. Firstly, there are not many gods, but one God. This is at the heart of the Hebrew faith. This is at the heart of the scriptures. There is only one God. Secondly, there are not multiple ways to our God, to the one God, there are not multiple ways. It's not like, you know, all roads lead to, to Rome. It doesn't matter what you believe. No. Only one way to God. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. Thirdly, in order to be effective, he had to offer himself for that mediator to be effective in his work, in his duty, he had to offer himself as a ransom, a sacrifice. Now, let's break down these truths. The word mediator in verse 5 means that, that go-between, someone who intervenes between two, two parties. In the Old Testament, Job, he went through a pretty hard time, one test after another after another, one of Job's complaints was that he didn't have a mediator who, would, who, who could take his message to, to the throne of God. He felt that he wasn't being heard. Why was he going through all this suffering? He cried out in Job 9.33, he cried out, If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus did just that. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who was with God in the beginning. He's also the Son of Man who came into our world. He's the one who became man without ever ceasing to be God. He was he wasn't Hercules, half man, half God. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Get that in your head. 
So by calling Jesus a man, Paul is not denying his deity. He has already affirmed that Christ's deity, remember in verse 13, he was blaspheming against God, even because he didn't know that Jesus was God. Verse 13, last chapter. So for a bridge to work, it must be anchored in, in two places. Otherwise, a bridge comes a flood, comes whatever it is, it, the bridge will just simply collapse. It has to be anchored in two points. Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God. Perfect man, perfect God. Perfect deity, perfect humanity are united in one person forever. No one since, no one before, no one will ever be like Jesus. So in order for sinful man to be reconciled to God, man had to find a way to pay for his sin. And every time he sinned, he had to offer a sacrifice. That's the Old Testament system. And another sacrifice, another sin, another sacrifice, another gift, another offering. Ultimately, the price was death because the wages of sin is death. So even if you go and hang yourself and kill yourself, are you you're offering yourself as a as a sacrifice for your sins, that's not going to do it. I'm sorry, because you're a sinful human being. That's not going to solve, that's not going to give you eternal life. It's going to get, might get you out of your problems on earth. It'll, it'll be everybody else's problem. But, so, even if you, you were to pay for sin with your own death, it's not going to do it. You're eternally damned. So God provided a perfect representative, a sinless man, to be the substitute for all the other sinful men through his death. He became the ransom. He paid the price to release us from the bondage to sin and death. And this ransom, because of who it was, because it was the spotless lamb, was sufficient, was enough, was more than enough, was perfect. That's why he said, it is finished. The price has been paid. And through faith, through repentance and through faith, we have eternal life through the Son. That is the plan of salvation. That is the plan that we have to share. So what do we do with this plan? How does it get out? Well, for that we need the people of God. Verse 7. I think you, you might have noticed that all the headlines are P's. Alright? Easy to remember. The people of God. Verse 7. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So, the Apostle Paul says that he was appointed for three specific tasks. Firstly, he was appointed as a herald or a messenger, one who proclaims an important message, who takes a message on behalf of somebody else. 
Secondly, Paul was appointed as an apostle. He tells the truth. He says here, I am not lying. Why is he having to say this? Because there were people then who, because he wasn't part of the original 12, they said, well, you're not really an apostle. And Paul says, yes, I am. I have been called as an apostle by Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, he had to say, defend his apostleship and say, I am not lying. I'm telling the truth here. And thirdly, he was appointed as a faithful teacher to the Gentiles. And as he spent quite a bit of time travelling and as he spent quite a bit of time in jail, I think God put him in jail so he could write letters that we could receive 2,000 years later to build up the church then, to build up the church today of how all of this marvellous salvation through Christ works. And he was called to be a faithful teacher, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. That God is the saviour of all men. And Paul was specifically called to reach out and teach the Gentiles about Christ. And now God, as we know, has, has many different ways of, of reaching people. And he can do it any way he chooses. He has many tools at his disposal. Right? But his favourite... I don't want to... I don't want him to use me for that. I, you know, how you just... As Moses said, please send somebody else, right? It's too hard. Just do it yourself, you know? Just, I don't know, knock them on the head or do something. Wake them up. No. God loves to use people like you and me. Men like Paul and countless others like him who have experience the saving grace of God in Christ. I, I use his, I've, I've saved you now, now I want you to, I'm going to send you to tell others, to reach others. And many times he uses the most unlikely people. If he can use an, a Jewish zealot like the Apostle Paul and transform him totally, somebody who hated the Gentiles, he says, you don't know what I'm going to do with him. I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. And it's all to the glory of God. It's all to his glory, his marvellous glory. Final thoughts. So let's return to the issue of prayer that is before us. I'm going to give you some, some pointers here on this, which is the main subject of these verses, right? Um, more specifically, praying so that the lost, those who we know, they could be our family, they could be our friends, they could be our neighbours, they could be people in, in society at large, they could be anywhere, really. As we said, he wants everybody to come to faith, right? So how should we pray when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission to go into the world? Well, first of all, I think we should pray for workers. Pray for workers. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask 
ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We should pray that the Lord will move the hearts, call people to have great compassion for those without Christ and to go within our community, within our world, to go. And that has been repeated since the early church, right? People have gone. Secondly, we should all be praying for opportunities. Paul said, and pray for us too, that God may open the door for our message. Not to close the door, but you pray to God for open the door for an opportunity so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So he was already in prison and he's praying for the doors to be open. Funny, Paul. Sometimes we need to pray that God will create an opportunity where none exists, especially with tough people, those who are really hardened, right? And this affects, this applies to how you witness on the job, at school, your family and your friends. Pray for opportunities. Thirdly, this is a tough one, pray for boldness. Not B-A, right? But B-O, not, not this, no. Boldness. Paul said to the Ephesians, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which, again, I'm an ambassador in chains. And he says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. We all know what this prayer is about, right? Many of us have found ourselves in potential witnessing situations. Say something, say something. Come on. And then we've walked away and we haven't said anything and then we sort of regret it, don't we? Pray for boldness. Fourthly, I think we need to pray for clarity. For clarity. I think we can also identify with Paul here when he said, pray that I may declare it clearly as I should. Not only fearlessly, but clearly. We don't want to be muddled up in our message. We don't want to go on tangents. We don't want to be distracted. We want to proclaim according to their age. Are they young? Are they middle-aged? Are they old? It's the same message, but it has to be presented in a way that they can understand it in their circumstance. So pray for clarity so that they can hear it. And lastly, pray for conversions. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work that God would soften their hearts so that people would respond to the gospel. In Luke 15.10, Jesus reminded us, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just, if, if you're here, if, if you've known the grace of the Lord, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you, through that surrender, that repentance to God, you've produced a party in heaven. 
and, and you've given the angels a reason to, hey, party time. There is rejoicing in heaven. And you know what? There is rejoicing in our hearts as well when somebody turns from darkness to light. I have seen it happen. I have seen lives transformed. And it, it's just amazing, the work of God. It has to bring joy to us because that's the heart of God and God lives in us. Let's pray that God can do mighty things so that God does mighty things in response to our prayers. And if you haven't prayed, you won't know what he does. But if you have prayed for somebody, then you'll say, thank you, Lord, for responding to my prayers. How good is that? How good is that? May God bless us. May he lead us so that we can, we can tell the wonderful story of his salvation to all.